0: I think a lot of market participants have sort of parked the Russia war on the sidelines and they think of it as background noise, but it could really come back to a front and center issue. I still think energy and weaponization of energy remains part of the Russian strategy. So I think we're going to be dealing with these issues for at least several more years.
1: Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions. Are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management.
2: Welcome back to our Smarter Markets Summer Playlist 2023, where we're sitting down with our special guests midway through the year to talk about where we are and where we might be and need to be heading next. It's our Beach Reading in a podcast. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at ABEX Technologies. Our guest today is Halima Croft, Managing Director and Global Head of Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. We'll be discussing the geopolitics and current state of play in the global commodities markets. Hello, Halima. Welcome back to Smarter Markets.
0: Thank you so much for having me back.
2: Absolutely. You know, the last time we talked was earlier this year at the Financial Times Global Commodity Summit in Luzon, and we only got to chat for a few minutes. But I so enjoyed talking with you that I've been looking forward ever since then to having you here for a full episode. So I'm really glad you could join us.
0: I am so excited to be back and how much has changed since we were together in March when it looked like the world was coming to the end with the finan- potential financial crisis.
2: <laughs> right, right. It was right after Credit Suisse was getting absorbed right at that time. And, you know, before we dive into the current events, I wanted to ask you, you know, my background is more a PhD in economics and your background I think is is a little unique. So I wanted to ask you about that in that you have the background, that you have a PhD in economic history, and you worked at the CIA. And I think I would imagine that background influences how you think about and form views on the commodity markets. So I just wanted to ask you, how do you think your background influences your thinking about these markets?
0: No, 100%. I have a non-traditional background for covering commodities. I, I did a PhD in economic history at Princeton. And what's interesting, though, is I did have a bit of a commodity take because I was looking at the longest sustained economic reformer in Africa, Ghana, which at one point had been the world's largest cocoa producer. And I was looking at sort of government interventions in the market and how that impacted Ghana's economic fortunes. And then I had done a lot of work, though, at Princeton on other big commodity producers. I'd done work on the Middle East, on Nigeria, and I ended up being recruited to join the CIA. I was recruited before 9-11, but I actually walked in the door on December 1, 2001. And it was an incredible time where energy security was seen as a really vital core national security priority of the Bush-Cheney administration. And so I joined a team that was looking at worldwide threats to oil supply. And we did this in the run-up to the Iraq War, and we had very exciting things happen, like Venezuelan oil strikes, attacks on critical Nigerian oil infrastructure. Right as we were going into the Iraq War, we were anticipating significant disruptions of Iraqi crudes. So that whole experience of thinking about what does a global supply picture look like? What are the risks to oil supply? How are sovereign governments thinking about managing Their resources, like that was all core to the work I did at the CIA. And it remains core to how, at least, I look at commodity markets. I mean, there are people on this fabulous team that I work with that look at the supply and demand numbers, that look at all the traditional aspects of how you think about commodity markets. But I think I bring that geopolitical twist to the markets as well.
2: Well, I'd love to dive into that geopolitical twist and take on the markets because there's a lot going on still. And maybe we can start with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and how that may be continuing to affect commodity markets.
0: I mean, what's amazing is that we are basically in the, the second year of a war that many market participants Never thought would happen because they thought it was so economically irrational for Russia to invade Ukraine. And then, right after the war began, remember how quickly prices ran up because there was anticipation of significant supply disruption. And the whole US policy was really designed to punish Russia and not. The United States and other Western governments. So we really avoided initially sanctioning Russian energy and, and things like price caps were really designed to keep Russian oil on the market. And so the moment I saw you in March at the FT conference, a lot of the big traders had made this big bet on this Massive disruption Russian supply that didn't come, and we're sort of fading that geopolitics as a story in the oil market. But what we're really seeing is, is we are seeing now Russian supply come down. You know, we have it down about eight hundred thousand barrels since the start of the year. And so the question I think about when I think about Russia is, is Russia's best days as an energy producer behind it now because of the impact of this war, because of the impact of some of the sanctions that was going after future Russia production when those sanctions are put in place. But it's going to be very hard for Russia to get financing and equipment for its energy sector. And so the question for the oil market is, if this war is a multi-year war going forward, you know, are we going to see this continual decline in Russian output?
2: Right. That's a great point. Do those sanctions finally begin to to bind on the investment needed to maintain the Russian oil sector?
0: Right. Really complex, difficult to operate fields. And when these sanctions were put in place, I think there was an expectation that this would be a rather short war. And now we're seeing the impact, I think, now starting on, on the technology side.
2: Right. And I also want to ask you, there's a lot going on in the Black Sea right now as well. Yes. So we've had you know, Russia pull out of the grain deal. Yes. So outside energy markets proper, but still affecting the, the wheat market. And there's been a, a step up in Ukrainian attacks on Russian tankers in the Black Sea as well, I believe. What do you think happening there?
0: Such an important story. Because as you mentioned, July 17th, Russia pulls out of the Black Sea grain deal, this UN broker deal that was enabling Ukrainian grain to reach global markets. Not only did they pull out of the deal, they started attacking Ukrainian agricultural infrastructure and export infrastructure. So then you had the Ukrainians respond August 4 and 5 by attacking Russian tankers, including a tanker that had been supplying at one point jet fuel to Syria, which then apparently was being used by Russian jets. And that tanker had been sanctioned by the US Treasury. And you had senior officials saying in Ukraine that it was immoral and indefensible to ship Russian oil. So there was this expectation the first week of August that the Ukrainians were going to go after Russia's most important source of revenue, the the oil exports. But something happened. There were conversations, I think, with the US government that basically were saying like, this is not, you know, a policy that we think will be helpful. We want to keep oil markets well supplied. So then we had the announcement last week of this essentially commodity safe corridor, where Ukrainian officials said that they will not go after non military ships, so essentially, hands off in terms of cargoes carrying Russian commodities. At the same time, though, Russia has shown no signs of going back into this grain deal. And they continue to attack Ukrainian infrastructure, again, export infrastructure when it comes to commodities. And also, you mentioned you know, the wheat trade. I mean, the fact that Russia has had this bumper wheat harvest, they're essentially also going after Ukraine's market market by supplying African nations with additional supplies of grain. And so to me, this is a really important story. It speaks to the fact that we are waging the war in a way that enables Russia to retain some pretty significant revenue while at the same time providing Ukraine with weapons. The question is like, is this a short war scenario or a long duration war because of the fact that we are so concerned about rising energy prices.
2: And it's really fascinating how the causality runs both ways, right? That geopolitics drives the oil market and the oil market constrains the limits of geopolitics. Now, there's also with Russian oil supplies coming down as you said. Now there's a there's a look for how can we get every barrel oh, yes. out there. And 100%. you've been writing and working on what's happening with the US Iran relationship. Right. In light of this. No,
0: this is, these are such great questions. I so enjoy being on this podcast because if you think about the the Biden administration, when they came into office, there was an expectation that U.S. would reenter JCPOA, the 2015 Iranian nuclear agreement that essentially Iran basically only enriched at lower levels of uranium and in return, we lifted sanctions on Iranian oil exports. The U.S. pulled out of that agreement in 2018. We slapped back sanctions. And so there was this expectation that we would get some type of deal that would enable the U.S. to go back in and that we would remove all sanctions on Iranian oil exports. Some things got in the way of that, most notably the fact that Iran continued to make significant strides in its nuclear program, cracking down also on peaceful demonstrators. And so it became really challenging for the Biden administration to think about selling a formal nuclear agreement with Iran to Congress, especially since the Iranians were saying, we saw this movie before, we went into an agreement in 2015, we thought that the relief would be enduring, we abided by the terms of the deal, and yet another administration pulled out. And so Iranians kept saying, we want guarantees that whatever deal we sign, Will be permanent. But the problem is, it's congressional sanctions, no president can do that. So it's going to be very challenging to get a formal deal. What it looks like we are getting, and we saw the signs of this last week when the Iranians released a number of Americans that were being held in prison into house arrest in Iran, is that we're getting the signs of an informal agreement, whereby rich Iran does not enrich beyond 60% uranium levels, which is very close to weapons grade level that they were trying to get them to not provide Russia with as much drone technology. And in return for the sort of freeze that we go soft on sanctions enforcement and Iranian oil exports have recently climbed to to five year highs. And so the question is, in a go soft sanctions enforcement, you know, approach on Iran, how many more barrels can they move into Asia? But this is Certainly, part of the energy diplomacy strategy of the Biden administration. We're not going to be doing any more blockbuster SPR releases. We initially had been in buyback mode this summer, but that has been paused. But we're not going to be able to have that tool in the toolkit to bring down energy prices. So I think a greater reliance on this type of diplomatic effort to see where the potential sources of supply can come onto the market.
2: And I'm glad you brought up the U.S. SPR, because I wanted to ask you about that and how that's changing the relationship potentially between the U.S. and OPEC. And by OPEC, I guess I really mean Saudi Arabia. In the old days, the SPR was supposedly only used for non-economic reasons, time of war, national security. Disruptions Obviously,
0: to refineries, or weather-related events? Acts
2: of God. <laughs> You know, but the U.S. has increasingly been using the SPR as a policy tool to influence the oil market, influence prices. And that's kind of a change in the way the U.S. and Saudi had approached the oil market. And I'm curious if you have thoughts on how the change in U.S. behavior is being received by and affecting the behavior of Saudi and the rest of OPEC.
0: Well, it's interesting you bring up the, the changing use of the SPR because – Again, we're going to show our age on this, on this podcast, <laughs> tape. Oh, here we go. Because it, so if we go back to 2011 with the Arab Spring, remember we had the big Libyan disruption. And that was really one of the first times that we used the SPR when there was not a disruption to a US refinery. Essentially, we released from the SPR to put additional supply on the market because we had this outage in Libya. And so it's, I think that to me was a turning point in the market is when we basically said, okay, We're going to use these barrels to bring down price. We said we were backfilling Libya, but we're bringing down price. And in the case of now with the Russia-Ukraine war, we did it explicitly to target price when there wasn't a significant Russian supply disruption. So that was another sort of change in the way the SPR is used. But I certainly think when we go into all the drama that led up to that October OPEC meeting with the 2 million barrel a day cut and the strong reaction from Washington. I do think that the lack of clarity around future SPR releases, criteria for buying back, contributed to the decision led by Saudi Arabia to cut production. I think that had certainly been part of the negotiation with the Biden administration was okay, what will the terms of a buyback look like? And I think there had been, at that moment, there had not been a lot of clarity on what the buyback conditions would look like. So I think that was one of the reasons why OPEC proceeded with a cut in October. It was a contributing factor.
2: Right, because it's a really interesting interesting scenario to play out. If you were sitting in Saudi Arabia's seat, would you want to supply oil onto the market at a low price so the U.S. can refill its SPR? Or... Is it uh, more comfortable and give you a little bit more control to have a, a low SPR that can't be brought onto the market the moment it starts to tighten up?
0: Well, also, you know, there are all sorts of things that were happening. If we go back to October, do you remember how fast oil was falling then? Yeah. I mean, I think from the, the Saudi perspective, they very much sort of wanted to put a circuit breaker into the market in October. That's why we actually thought they were going to do a significant cut, because we were looking at the speed of the decline and the fact that the Saudis were so clear that they were not going to repeat 2015. They were not going to take a hands-off approach. They were not resurrecting the Ali Naimi strategy. And so very much, if you think about what motivates Saudi Arabia and the Saudi leadership, they are very focused on delivering for their own population. Just as we wanted to use the SPR to insulate US consumers from the impact of the Russia-Ukraine war, the Saudis are very focused on having the revenue to deliver on this wildly ambitious, transformational Vision 2030 agenda. And so from their perspective, I think they were deeply concerned that if they didn't come into the market, you could be staring down a similar price outlook as we saw in 2015. And so they wanted to be super serious about sending this message to the market that they were going to be activist. And I think that, again, when we think about the SPR, if there had been sort of more clarity about what moment the U.S. would come in, I think there was probably also a price gap between what the Biden administration wanted, obviously, and what the Saudis wanted. But I do think the U.S.-Saudi relationship is in a significantly better place since that October meeting.
2: And, you know, thinking about oil inventories and SPRs, I wanted to ask you a question about China. Because, you know, on the one hand, you read the headlines, and it sounds like the economy's in rough shape, demand should be coming down. But the oil import numbers, at least so far, have continued to look Pretty good. And I'm curious, it's it's a bit of a head-scratcher, right?
0: <laughs> Multi-year highs in June. I mean, July was softer, but the data so far in August looks solid. And, you know, final utilization rates look solid as well in China. I think this reminds me, again, I'm really showing my age on this podcast. Um, it reminds me of 2015. Do you remember when we had the China credit scare? Do you remember we had this recovery in Brent prices in June? We briefly touched 70 And then all of a sudden, we had this China credit scare, and it was kind of a sell-everything scenario, and people were like, you know, imports are going to be terrible. And if you looked at the end of 2015, you know, Chinese oil imports held up, and so you had this macro story creating a sort of of sum-of-all-fears dynamic (laughs) but it wasn't mirroring what was actually going on in the physical market in China. And I I do think that has been a bit of a similar story this year is that every time you get worrisome economic data on China, people sell oil, but it doesn't necessarily reflect what's actually happening in terms of the import data.
2: Yeah, it'll certainly be an interesting thing to keep tabs on. And I'm curious, you know, we've talked about a number of geopolitical issues. Are there any other Geopolitical issues that we should be discussing or should have on our radar?
0: I think there's a lot that we should have on our radar. Certainly, I think that when we think about Iran, you know, we just I talked about the US perspective on was the White House perspective on this. But there are some interesting spoilers. Certainly you should be paying attention to Congress. There I mean a number of Republicans, but also some Democrats raising concerns about what they see as this effort to end run the congressional review process on an informal deal. These are actually congressional sanctions, and so loose enforcement of their own sanctions does not sit well with every member of Congress. So watch potentially congressional action to try to force the White House to at least, you know, come before Congress and, and defend this informal arrangement. But also I would be watching for what happens in Israel. I mean, Bibi Netanyahu has consistently said that on his watch, Iran is not going to be a, a nuclear power, not even a threshold power. And so the question is, does a deal that allows Iran to remain on the brink of being a threshold power, is that going to satisfy him? Or will we potentially see A return to the Israeli dark arts? Will mysterious explosions happen at critical infrastructure sites in Iran? Will we have, you know, once again, key officials in the nuclear program have mysterious accidents? Like, are we going to see some type of return to the shadow war? Will will Israel tolerate this informal deal? It's
2: a lot going on, as you said, from just when we talked uh, earlier this year. I was curious, you know, outside of the geopolitics, what other big influences are you seeing on the commodity markets this year that people should be aware of?
0: No, I, again, I, I, I focus a lot on obviously the geopolitics, but when I think about OPEC, I don't always think of that as, as geopolitics. I really think about it as really core economics. And I think about the you know Minister of Energy in Saudi Arabia, His Royal Highness Prince Abdelaziz bin Salman, he really thinks about himself as a, a sort of central banker of oil. And so I think it's really enormously important to think about How they see the market, what they see as the sort of their core priorities in terms of what price meets their domestic needs. So I I think that sort of a a broader thinking about if you were sitting in the seat of Prince Abdelaziz, what type of action would you be taking in the market? Or really importantly, if you are sitting in the seat of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, how are you seeing? your revenue imperative? How are you thinking about delivering on Vision 2030? I think a lot of market participants are really in the weeds on the fundamentals and obviously thinking about inventories, thinking about what we're seeing like in the Atlantic Basin. But I often think that we should be thinking about putting ourselves in the place of these leaders of these oil-producing nations and thinking about how they're seeing the world.
2: And I think that's great, especially thinking over the long term, where you're away from some of these smaller inventory cycles. And I wanted to get your thoughts, and I'm not going to ask you for a price forecast or anything like that, but I think there has for some time been a sense in the market that there's a long-term bullish story for many commodities, and then concern about the macroeconomic picture in the short run. And over the course of the year, prices have stayed broadly volatile, but Stable <laughs> from end to end, and I'm curious, like, how are you thinking about, you know, say the the, the long term outlook versus the near term?
0: Well, I think that the really interesting question that a lot of us are trying to grapple with is: does this underinvestment thesis really hold, and who is going to be the last one standing when it comes to investment in oil and gas? And I spend so much time in the Gulf. And to me, what's interesting is, like, that's where you really do see the the all of the above strategy, where they're basically like, look, you're going to have, you know, key parts of the world that are going to drive demand for oil, the developing nations, a lot of focus on energy poverty still, like in places like sub-Saharan Africa. And what does the future look like for demand for places like India? Is India the new China? And they're basically saying, like, we're going to invest in the energy of the future, hydrocarbon, you know, hydrogen, we are going to invest obviously in natural gas, but we're going to invest in in oil as well. And what I think is going to be interesting is is if this is not mirrored elsewhere, even if demand declines overall for fossil fuels, who's going to be dominating the supply? Are we going to get even if it's a sh- smaller pie, are we going to have fewer participants? And are we going to see then greater influence accruing to these nations who are pursuing this type of investment strategy?
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating question of where will the last barrel, assuming we ever get to a last barrel, where will that come from? It's and where would you want it to come golf. from?
0: It, it's it's <laughs> going to come from the Gulf.
2: Right. And you know, bringing up you know investing in the energy of the future and doing the full range, it made me think of, um, you know, there also seems to be a, a switch to the energy of the past. And I'm thinking of coal in particular. Arjun Murthy was on a, a few fantastic. weeks ago. and made, He's great. And he, he made a really important point that, you know, in, in places like China and places like India, you can see a move to electric vehicles, which here we associate with going green, sustainable. There, it could very well be associated more with energy security. You know, obviously, those countries have way more coal reserves. They can generate electricity from coal, put that into electric vehicles, right, it's a coal and car. reduce their dependence on oil. And it's a coal car. And I'm curious, you know, do you see that calculus when you think about the the folks in China, the folks in India?
0: I would even say if we see that calculus when we look to Europe. I mean, mm. to me, what was so striking about the war and the way we've chosen, again, when you think about our sanctions policy, But also when you think about how quickly European nations pivoted and think about Germany in particular, I mean, the fact that when they were staring down an energy crisis and potentially having to deal with angry consumers in their home countries, like they went back to the traditional fossil fuels. And I think that's an interesting question that it poses is, if this was not the moment, yes, the the Europeans did make a lot of measures in terms of consumption as well, rushing back on consumption. But if this was not the moment to really say to consumers, like, this is not going to be necessarily a low cost transition, like that's the kind of moment to say, like, what we've learned in the Russia Ukraine war also potentially applies to the energy transition, that this can be a, a bumpy price environment. We can see volatility and preparing consumers for the economic cost of a transition, that the necessary transition. And I, I think about that in the U.S. as well. When we think about SPR releases, a lot of emphasis was placed on shielding consumers from the impact of the war in terms of higher prices particularly in the U.S., it wasn't as much a conversation about ratcheting down consumption. Nobody wants to have the Jimmy Carter put on a sweater conversation here, but that may be a necessary conversation as we get further along into policies designed to accelerate the transition.
2: All right. I remember seeing Jimmy Carter on television, so I'm definitely feeling my age right now. (laughs)
0: You and me both. Uh, But I'm really
2: glad you brought that up because, you know, we've talked about policymakers in China, India, a little bit in the US, you know, Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Russia. But this energy transition piece really brings in policymakers in Europe as well as policymakers in the US where, as you said, you know, maybe a year ago, a little more. There was a real focus on we're going to transition, we're going to transition quickly, we're not going to talk about the pain involved, kind of security, reliability, taking a back seat. Do you think that shift, because it definitely seems like there's been a shift yeah. to when we look at the natural gas market in Europe, right? Building a lot of LNG intake facilities. Right. So even if they're not doing as many long term contracts, they're they've got the capability. How do you see the thinking about the fossil fuel? industry broadly, I guess, and investment needed to keep our current energy supply going while we transition. How do you see that calculus changing among policymakers?
0: I think natural gas has seen the biggest sort of shift because remember, it wasn't even in the green taxonomy of the EU. Mm. And then you have this war. I think the war changed so much in terms of the thinking about energy security. It brought energy security back up to the top of action items for Western governments. And again, look how the EU pivoted. I mean, they're building out the infrastructure. Think about the role US LNG played in preventing, staving off an energy crisis in Europe. And the question is going forward, now that we've decided that gas is a transition fuel, is it a transition fuel or a destination fuel that still needs to be settled? But I think it is squarely established now that natural gas is seen as a essential transition fuel. And again, I don't think any European governments really wanted to face the full wrath of their consumers. You know, I think about what happened in France, where with the yellow vests, when you had those protests, nobody wanted to return to that And natural gas imports from the US and also places like Qatar really helped stave off that scenario. But I think it's going to be interesting when we think, you know, going forward, you've had the Biden administration really shift from, remember the early days of the Biden administration, the discussion was really about keep the resource in the ground. And now you have still the conversation about, okay, we need you to put the money in the ground, because we need these supplies in the near term. The question is, if you are an energy company, and we've seen a really strong rebound in US production, but does that message sort of work with your your boardroom? Is that enough? You know, we keep talking now about just put the money in the ground for the near term. At what point, though, do we have to say like, when do we get to the end state of this? That's, I think, going to be the challenge. Like you need these short term supplies. And so you're saying we need the investment for the near term. But can you manage this so you don't have this volatile, disruptive, messy transition?
2: And we've talked a lot about policymakers and I appreciate that. Such a unique insight that you have. Of course, you're also the head of commodities research at RBC Capital Markets. And so you're I'm sure you're talking with investors and CEOs mm-hmm. and all those folks every day who are putting the dollars to work. And I'm curious, you know, has there been a shift in their attitude or or what is the the attitude among investors towards commodities these days?
0: Well, you know, it is really interesting to me because I, I, I feel like I feel I see my age, but these things are happening. These, these shifts are happening so fast now. I mean, just think about 2020 when oil briefing went negative and there was this whole discussion about peak demand and is, is it the age of fossil truly over? And then the war shifts everything back to basically energy security being of importance and now conversation about do we have enough investment? And so these things are these things are moving, they're moving quickly. And so to me, we don't know when this war is going to end. And so I, I think we're gonna be dealing with this energy security dynamic for at least several more years because. I think a lot of market participants have sort of parked the Russia war on the sidelines and they think of it as background noise, but it could really come back to a front and center issue. I mean, you mentioned earlier in this conversation what was happening in the Black Sea. If we had had a Russian tank or sunk, that would have been, I think, a material event. And again, I think the Russians have every incentive to try to get the West to rethink the supply of weaponry to Ukraine. And so I do think they want to cause as much economic pain as possible. And what, what, what's left for them in terms of weaponry? And I, I still think energy and weaponization of energy remains part of the Russian strategy. So I think we're going to be dealing with these issues for you know at least several more years.
2: Well, I hope you'll come back and talk with us more about it. Speaking of things that go quickly, I feel like conversations always fly by with you. There's so, so much in them, so entertaining to talk with you. And I really appreciate that. Before I let you go, though, as you know, we think of our summer playlist series as our beach reading and a podcast. And I'm asking everyone who's on, including yourself, what's on their own personal beach reading list this summer, whether you're reading it at the beach or in the office. So what are you reading this summer, Halima?
0: So I was at the beach and I decided to go back and read some novels. So 100 years of solitude was at the top of my beach reading list. I I also have teenagers. So sometimes what I do is I see what they're reading for school. And I basically read it alongside them as well. So I picked up a little Marquez this summer. But to stay in my, you know, my main world, I also always bring foreign affairs with me. So that is always my essential, plain reading and beach reading as well.
2: Uh, It sounds like a great range of topics. Thanks for sharing that with us.
0: Thank you for having me on again.
2: Absolutely. Really appreciated you being here. Thanks again to Halima Croft, Managing Director and Global Head of Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue our Summer Playlist 2023 with our next special guest. We hope
1: you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe. With markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, ABEX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.